Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of major American Jewish organizations, joins us for a weekly update on this Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Well, welcome back to, uh, to you, and it's um, a pleasure to be back on the air you, with you. How would you sum up your, How would you sum up your journey to Israel? Amazing. And anybody who doesn't get a chance to experience Sukkot and the Shal Shregalim, the three holidays, Pesach, Chuos in Israel is really missing something. It's it's a totally different Yom Tov. It's a totally different experience spiritually, physically, in every respect. And it's um, and to see so many people there, we know and. And the the crowds at the hotel, hundred thousand, one hundred and fifty thousand at a time, more than a million people visited in the three weeks before Rosh Hashanah or before Yom Kippur, and then of course over Sukkot, huge crowds turning out, and it was really uh, remarkable. It is amazing, and I, I think it was with you that I was discussing pretty recently the statistic the statistics about how many American Jews have never been to Israel. It is so much more than anybody listening right now thinks in terms of those who have never been there. And if only they would make a trip, even if it's Sukkot or not Sukkot, if they would make a trip and would spend a few days in Israel, it would be a life-changing experience. And likely uh, their attitudes toward many different things would change in a positive manner. That's right. And it, and it will be the first of many trips once yeah. they have the experience and. I see it even with non-Jews who who visit Israel and and who tell us uh, and and act on it by returning very quickly thereafter. They got to go back. That's the feeling when you when you're back at home. You got to get back to Israel as soon as possible. It's amazing. It's amazing how the country pulls you in. Uh, Jewish, not Jewish, as you just pointed out, pretty amazing. Uh, here in this country, uh, so we did um, uh, follow up and read a lot about the uh, report on anti-Semitism and the. Um, the statistic, uh, close to 90% of American Jews do feel that anti-Semitism is a problem here in the United States, which, frankly, I was I was happy to see that collectively, as you add together the different categories and different responses, uh, it approached 90%. Uh, on top of that, we, you know, I don't know if you saw it because, again, you know, it took place over the holiday break, but you, you see the Democratic um, a debate for uh, for the nomination for president. Uh, you have uh, at least one, maybe more candidates who are clearly pro-BDS and make it a point to, to make sure to state so. Uh, you have one who's uh, insisting that aid to Israel be used as leverage um, regarding Israel's policies. I, I mean, when you see this whole atmosphere and this type of uh, these types of um, uh, opinions seep into the public uh, political arena, uh, do you start to do you start to worry about who might be representing one side of the aisle come next year? Well, it's not a question of being on one side of the aisle or a right-left issue, or as many have portrayed. And in fact, the poll that you you referenced indicated that in fact the the Malcolm Ma- Malcolm, I apologize. We're having again that that usual problem. If you just get close to the base of the phone, that'd be great. Thank you. Um, that 90% of the respondents said that they saw the threat from the right, and about a, a similar number, maybe slightly less, said that they saw the threat from the left. Right. And that the the truth is that it's coming from all aspects, and it's a continuous, um, continuing to grow. That the numbers of incidents amounts all the time. 
Hello? Yeah, go right ahead. Is this better? Yeah, it's much better. Okay, so I switched phones. So the, um, and, and when asked about the, the nature of the threat, you see that people begin to get it. The question is, what do they do about it? And that the, how much has changed since last year, Pittsburgh? Uh, we saw the arrest of 12 white supremacists reported. We see some other numbers that are coming out and that many synagogues did take action, but the bulk of places still have not taken the proper precautions, according to um, this, this study, also shows that the, that the uh, responses on the part of a very big percentage of our institutions has been, uh, has been weak. And while in the immediate aftermath of incidents we see people reacting, they they don't and 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 we see the numbers by the way are not just here in in England the numbers more than doubled in England and Wales uh, and with I don't know fourteen hundred incidents and more remembering that a, a big percentage are really not even reported and we see the numbers in Argentina in a part all over the world uh, the incidents uh, are are mounting. And but we've seen good steps. The Czech Parliament passed a very strong resolution against BDS, against anti-Semitism, against anti-Israel, denying Israel's right to exist as an expression of anti-Semitism, with a vote I think was 120 to 20. Uh, and other states that have countries that are now considering resolutions or actions that they can take. So. You, they, with the numbers in Germany, very disturbing that one in four say Jews have too much power and that the anti-Semitism, again, right and left, Muslim, etc., uh, indicate that the, the numbers are not going down and the governments really have to do more. And that starts here in our own country, uh, while the legislation and other initiatives have passed, um, and and uh, in, in Britain, you know, you see it expressed politically, where almost 80% of British Jews said that they would prefer the No Deal Brexit to having Corbyn as as Prime Minister, right. well, that even makes, though they, even though most of them did not support Brexit per se. Right. Well, that makes sense. Um, look, in the context of history, and and we know what to expect already if we have our eyes open and we think back all the different, you know, through, through through all the different centuries of Jewish existence, none of this is unusual. It just, you know, in, in the comfort of the U.S., and again, I know Europe is different, but in the comfort of the U.S., it becomes uncomfortable when these things start to happen, you know, here in, in, in these areas. Um, I, I don't know how you feel. I feel a level of discomfort when major candidates or those who are viewed as serious candidates are open BDSers. You're absolutely right, and I, I should have answered that as well. Uh, there were two candidates who have expressed um, a support, one more more blatantly, about uh, using aid to Israel as leverage, something right. rejected always on a bipartisan basis because this the defense is because of the aid that we give it is because, A, it's an investment in our own security, but, B, because this is money that is essential, and especially when we see the increasing Iranian threat and the threat from the militias and, and other groups around Israel, which we, we will discuss, I'm sure, um, and that they openly express these views, including pro-BDS sympathy. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, I'm concerned about what we will see at the Democratic Convention in this regard, uh, where last time, you know, the resolution on Jerusalem, et cetera, seemingly passed but but was declared uh, defeated, that the the acceptance of public declarations of this kind 
is very disturbing, and and this happens on the local level even more than uh, on the national level, but doesn't get reported that way. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll move to the other topics in a minute. I just, you know, like I'm sure you saw the video of the sukkah being uh, demolished by vandals uh, in Michigan, right? One of the one of the hills there, and I, I don't know. And, and again, I I propose the theory that that there is a certain lackadaisical attitude right now between political leaders. And the police departments, especially, I think that's a very, very important part of it in New York, where the police do not feel they have, you know, full reign to crack down on, on certain crimes, especially the crimes that seem like minor ones, even though we don't regard them as minor ones generally. Um, I, I don't know, there just seems to be a, 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 an attitude, a pervasive uh, intent around the country among those who, who want to get away with things against Jews to just... Uh, you know, to, to keep testing the authorities, and it doesn't seem like the authorities, generally speaking, are are doing much to crack down on them. Well, I think it, it a depends on the place. Uh, I think NYPD generally has been very responsive. I think there are other police forces around the country that have taken stronger action. Uh, but I think your basic point is right that. There's a dismissive attitude often, or even on the Michigan State University um, campus incident where the sukkah was destroyed, and we saw others where there was swastikas and other defacements. Uh, already they're saying they have video of two drunken men going in. That already is a cover or an excuse for the incident, saying, well, it wasn't right. really it's them, it was, they were too, They were drunk and therefore right. did it. No, the fact if they drink and their inhibitions are gone, then the anti-Semitism comes out. Right. And, and we cannot allow, and the pressure has to be on every single institution when there's an incident, that it not be allowed to be brushed under the rug, that there has to be pursued, and that, that is across the board. And we have to see to it that hate crimes are reported, and that's our community's responsibility uh, as well. But that people, when you see something, say something, if something happens, report it. Don't let these things go by and say, well, I won't bother, I won't uh, get involved. We need people to be involved. And, and if, if the kids on campus are not feeling safe, and we are doing everything with legal actions, with getting donors, with others to, to speak out, to speak to the institutional heads, who often are naive or, or not, it's not malicious on their part, uh, and once brought to their attention, some do it, do more, and others, and we've gotten letters from them after the legal victory in San Francisco State, and they were sent the information, who justify and say everything's under control, we, we don't have any incidents, when we know of, of the incidents on their campus. Yeah. All right, I mean, I don't want to belabor the point, but I just, I, I keep telling people that when you have a police force that allows, you know, uh, allows goons to throw milk and water at you and you can't act upon it, you know, what? Why on earth would you be out there protecting a Jewish kid, you know, at the risk of, of losing your job or, or, you know, taking action against somebody that would be viewed in a negative uh, in a negative light? And I think that's a big part of it. But, you know, anyway, um, you were you were in Israel last week. You leave Israel and the likelihood of a third election in less than a year is more likely. How do you explain the fact that Prime Minister Netanyahu gave up on trying to form a government? Well, first of all, he he wanted to make the effort and show that he initiated uh, outreach to the blue and white and to everyone to try and create a broad unity party. Obviously, those efforts were doomed to failure, I think, from the start. And now Mr. Gantz is in the blue and white. We're given the mandate uh, and will try 
right now we don't see the option. There are possibilities that Blue and White and Lee could, together with Labor and maybe others, could form a government. If Netanyahu doesn't bring the block as he has till now, the right-wing block with religious parties and others that have pledged allegiance to him, and he met with them again two days ago and said that they would stick together as a block, uh, then we might very well be headed towards a third election, something the people of Israel do not want. They're tired of it. The expense is, is great. The, the burden on society and the outcome by every poll now would be more or less the same, with the <laughs> exception that I think Lieberman would finally pay a price for his having been the cause of the second round of elections by not uh, joining, and the uh, the polls show that his vote would be cut in half. That, of course, is very fluid, and it depends on the pollster, et cetera, and the sample that they choose. But no indication that you would have a vastly different outcome uh, than now. Why do so you- there, there are negotiations, which include what happens if Netanyahu gets indicted and he would suspend himself. What could they agree on some formula by which his place would be filled if he had the initial rotation? Uh, They're talking about a minority government. Could there be a government that is formed with the Arab uh, parties uh, using their seats together with the blue and white? And uh, even though they wouldn't join the government, but they would vote. They need 61 votes in order to get it approved, get the new government approved. Would they be part of it? So these are there are very complicated uh, issues involved, and we'll have to see. Uh, I, I think that the real progress will be in the last week before the decision about a new election <laughs> has to be made. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world, the web at on the Nahum Siegel Network, and of course in the beloved NSN app. Feel free to comment on the app. Go to the NSN, Nahum Siegel Network app for Android and iPhone, and comment away. Why do you think they stuck with him if there's a likelihood that a different right-wing leader could actually form a government and avoid the new election? Why do you think everybody on the right declared an allegiance to Netanyahu at this point? Well, first of all, because he's seen as the most competent person, probably, and because he's uh, he's very clever in, in pulling people together and backing him. I don't know when it comes to the crunch what the attitude will be, whether I mean, they'd be willing to they're, come up. They're this close to a Lieberman right-wing coalition if they just got rid of Bibi. They're this close to it. And then no election and a majority government. Well, first of all, I think that uh, getting rid of Bibi is is not the way that mostly could members think, although, I mean, I had discussions with many, and, and I've talked about openly the Bibi fatigue, that after 12 years, people won't change. Um, and, of course, you have the legal issues overhanging and many other things. But generally what people's comments are is that he is a, a leader. There are people in Likud who have been talked about, Saar, Erdan, others, who and Saar, ahead of the pack, um, uh, to be to be successors, but I think no one wants to go out and look like they they're being disloyal or would disrupt we uh, could right now. That's one of the options that will be open in that those final days to avoid another election. Wow! And um, and if there is another, as you've said to us, if there is another one, it's likely going to be in February of 2020, right? That is right. You need to give three months' notice. So if you uh, to, in order to have it, and that's, again... You know, it's funny... It's it, probably on the first anniversary of the first round. It's funny because uh, as all this was happening over the Yuntif season, I think, 
unless I'm the only crazy one, I think most people just assumed that he was going to somehow pull this out. He's never been given the challenge of forming a government and failed at it. And we just thought that he, you know, he'd figure it out. He'd, he'd come up with the right negotiation ploy, and and you know, end up forming a government. And when he, that's why I say when he gave back the mandate, and then it was given to Gans, it was uh, to to me it was a little bit of a shakeup, uh, you know, to even believe that BB couldn't do it. Um, I don't know if it was as I dramatic. don't think that I, I think for most Israelis and others knew that uh, or certainly those who followed this closely knew that the likelihood of his forming a government was minimal because everybody knows where people stand. Now the question is, will there be defections from blue and white or from Likud or from other parties, which is not predictable? Uh, and, and Netanyahu, given the charge by the president, um, had to show that he was making every effort and therefore, in his press conference, emphasized that, that he gave them every option in order to have a broad unity government, which he said the people of Israel want. That's what Gantz says also, that, that the people wanted. Um, and again, you know, there are anomalies of Israeli politics because of the list system, because of the structure of it, which are foreign to most Americans and, and seem very confusing. But this time, I found most Israelis confused as well and, and unsure about what the course would be. Um, and, I'm talking about political people. Yeah, yeah and even if uh, he does form a government, meaning Gans, and even if there's another election, frankly, it, it's going to be a weak government. Whatever it is, it's not going to be viewed as a strong government. And Israel needs a strong government right now. Look at the challenges. First of all, you see the whole world, from Lebanon to Chile to Hong Kong to Iraq, the Jordan, all, the huge demonstrations that are taking place, for, in some cases for different reasons, but this whole atmosphere of unrest and of, of uh, public demonstrations against corruption, which is good, and against Iran in some of these cases, which is good. But yeah. the, the world is, is in a very tense and, and delicate, I think, uh, posture in the Middle East in particular is in a very uh, concerning position. And you see the, the security cabinet meeting for the second time about the danger of a cruise missile attack from Iran, which I spoke to military people about and is not a ploy or an exercise. It is a real concern. They saw how effective the Iranian attack on Saudi Arabia was, where they used these combination missile and unmanned vehicle, uh, uh, you know, uh, drones that hit with such precision every target so that there is a high alert about this and a real concern. But we see Lebanon exploding with demonstrations, uh, criticizing Hezbollah, criticizing Nasrallah, criticizing Hariri, the, the government of, of Lebanon, which for Israel, and, and if they want a diversion, Israel has to be concerned that they will escalate tensions on, on the border. So that, Gaza, that, it's always It took way too long to get to this point, right? I mean, Hezbollah has had such a stronghold there. For so long now, suddenly there's a there's a, you know an uprising against them. Well, it's, the uprising is really against the corruption, and but they see that that Hezbollah and and the fact that the demonstrations are taking place in Shiite population centers, which are the basis support for uh, Hezbollah, um, that the uh, you know that uh, that they are all worried, and and in Iraq the demonstrations also taking on an anti-Iranian nature in public uh, way with Bani Sadr and others uh, coming out against the, the Iranians. And again, in Shiite areas, which is obviously the, their, their base. So the, um, well, what's happening in Lebanon is against the, the current government. It's against the arrangement. There's a fear about a war. The people don't want a war. But they know that they could easily be dragged into it 
by, uh, by Hezbollah, and the fact that Iran doesn't have the money right now, the financial resources because of the sanctions, to buy off everybody as they did before. They spend money on what they think was important, but we know that Hezbollah fighters haven't been paid to others, and that they use these kind of funds, and they're very extended uh, in different places, including in, the, in Syria, that the, the people are saying that's not what, where we want to see the money go when we have such high unemployment, when we have real economic uh, crises uh, uh, going on. So you have, um, um, you know, so, so many uh, areas of unrest and so many potential explosive uh, periods. It's one of the things that drives Putin and Erdogan and Iran together. It's not because they love each other. It's not because they you know, really want to support each other. It's because each one has a vested interest in either stability, it's Russia expanding its influence, having four bases there, you know, now being a, the, the dominant factor with a minimal investment, which I've talked about for a long time and, mm-hmm. and credit him, uh, Putin, with uh, how he's able to manipulate these situations. He, he neutralizes Turkey, which has always been the soft underbelly of, of Russia and the traditional hatred that existed there. Is that what he did this week? Would you call it neutralizing? Uh, I would say that to a degree, yes, that he, he was able to put him and the Syrian forces in, that Erdogan uh, agreed to it, and and supposedly is in the ceasefire, even though the Kurds tell me that he's not really honoring the ceasefire. And uh, 300,000 people have been displaced, and a couple hundred, three, four hundred were killed already. If there is a ceasefire, does the U.S. have any influence on establishing that ceasefire? No. Nothing? Because, you know, there are there are journalists writing that there was it was a joint U.S.-Russian pressure on Turkey to, to get this done. No. So the United States was involved in the first round, and they agreed to a certain... The uh, uh, zone that would be a security zone. Now the Russians have tripled it in their agreement with mm. Turkey, and they're the ones who are negotiating uh, uh, with them. And the you know, of course, Syria wants to see Iran diminished. They don't want to see Turkey being given too big of a role. You also have the likelihood of of them populating this area with uh, Syrian refugees from Turkey, and that will affect the demographic balances. Uh, as well in in the area. I mean, you're talking about uh, right now that Turkey holds a 900-square-mile area. It's not, on the map, it looks very small, but it it isn't really. And, you know, you have, uh, you know, if it comes to a ground war, the Bershmoga will give, the, the Kurdish forces will give the Iranians a real run for their money. They're tough fighters. But as long as there's a, there is no no-fly zone, which is what the singular advantage of Turkey, because they have an air force, they can bomb. They don't have to get into the trenches, and literally trenches. You have tunnels underneath many of these cities that the Kurds prepared, and they can they, they prove themselves to be effective fighters against ISIS, etc. And they were trained by U.S. forces about what to do in the event of an invasion with multiple fallback lines, etc. So the the um, uh, the Syrian army uh, joined the Kurds in some areas before. You have uh, alliances. Now they feel demoralized. They feel isolated. The Kurds, uh, and as I said, I, I met with some of them uh, this past week, and the um, um, and and they can be the swing population. Remember, there are tens of millions of them across Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. 
And that's why they don't give them an independent status or a state, because they would be a dynamic and an important force in the region could challenge these other governments. And now U.S. interests are irrelevant to them. Now they they feel uh, they, they raise a lot of questions. They say they were surprised by the decision, even though we had a minimal presence. We had a 1,000 soldiers, and now they've been redeployed. They have not been taken out, and Iraq said they can't come there. So they've actually been redeployed to protect the oil sources in Syria, the oil fields, and especially with, with the reports that ISIS fighters have been released. We don't know yet how many, but they, they were being held by the Kurds in prisons and uh, administered by the Kurds. The um, And they are turning to the defense of the areas and, and many leaving. So therefore, ISIS fighters and their families have been getting out. Uh, we don't know, again, the exact numbers, but it, it represents a threat and it can regroup both in Iraq and in in, uh, in Syria. So the, um, you know, Iran is rebuilding forces in the areas. It, it, it You know, it's so complex. It could talk about each of the things. You know, the Iran took control of seven towns on the Euphrates inside uh, Syria, which obviously the Syrians don't want, the Russians don't want. And the question is, will they be challenged? And what kind of, uh, how will they take advantage of the current uh, situation? We know they've done ethnic cleansing. You know that they built infrastructure. The real goal is to get near the Golan to be able to attack Israel. They keep talking about an attack on Israel. You see that the Russians and the have announced that they uh, a plan for peace in the Gulf, and the Iranians announced a plan for peace in the Gulf, so that they're all trying to position themselves as regional hegemonics, as, as regional powers, mm-hmm. and and Russia with nothing in an economy that is is uh, minimal, has exploited all these situations. And don't forget Turkey. You, and you, China you, coming in soon, and absolutely Turkey as well. Yeah, you've described to us how that's uh, been his attitude all along. He's the, he's the leader of the uh, of the region, no matter what anyone else thinks. Well, he wants to be the sultan, just yeah. as uh, Khomeini wants to be the head of the, uh, the Persian Empire. And Russia reestablishing the former Soviet Union, or at least the control, the expansive control, and you have to see that he neutralized what it's for was the Tsarist challenge for centuries, the challenge of the soft underbelly threatened by, you know, the Ottoman Empire from the south. And now they have neutralized all of these countries and made themselves uh, the court. Now it could all backfire. I mean, with the situation in Syria, who, who's going to be responsible for rebuilding? It's costing hundreds of billions of dollars it will cost to do it and take decades. Who's going to take responsibility for it? If, we, if Russia is the dominant force, they're going to walk away. Many of them, you know, try to blame the Europeans and say they didn't do enough, which is always valid. The Europeans are to blame for a lot of things. Uh, you know, even Albania uh, announced that they they um, foiled a plot by Iran to kill Iranian dissidents in the country, and talked about how the Quds Force have foreign operations, foreign ops units in Turkey, Austria, other countries operating to kill dissidents. Where's the outrage? Where's the response to it? There are just so many things going on right now that the it's hard for people to wrap their heads around it. And of course, we look primarily at the threats to Israel and mm-hmm. American interests and security. Uh, that in Jordan now, we have serious demonstrations targeting the queen, Queen Rania, who is a Palestinian, and the charges that she's diverted funds towards to serve the Palestinians, that she, the corruption, saying she's taken money, lands, given to her family, to, to her people, not to the 
Bedouins who, who are the majority, and, and um, this is a serious issue, so much so that she actually issued a public retort yesterday, which is not a common thing and for a queen to, to get up and, and defend herself publicly or feel the need to against these, um, these criticisms. And Jordan is always a very delicate balance, and and uh, the, stable, uh, the, the instability there can have broad ramifications. And the protection of the king has always been a priority for Israel to keep stability there. But these internal conflicts are are really serious. And we saw 150,000 people demonstrating in Iraq, despite the the clampdown on them and the Iranian threats against them. In the old days, we used to like when enemies of Israel would beat each other up and be preoccupied with that. But now it seems that, absolutely now it seems, now it seems there are just too many players, though there are too many. You know, at the, at the same time that you're watching all of these uh, different countries and, and groups go at each other, as you just described, there's certain times that Israel needs to move in, whether that means physically move in or not, uh, to establish some stability or at least you know make the effort towards stability. And as, as these wildfires can spread. You know, like the California fires, they can spread and and have unintended or unexpected consequences far beyond even the borders of these individual countries. You know, a couple of weeks ago with the whole development with the U.S., uh, the, the conjecture was that ISIS would be much better off. Now, today, two weeks later, do we think that, in fact, ISIS is much better off from their point of view? I wouldn't say much better off, but, uh, I mean, a number of them did escape, and they they are trying to regroup both in Syria and, and in Iraq. Um, I think it's a concern. I certainly hear from many people, um, military and others, about the potential implications of, uh, of ISIS there. And they are also fighting, there are ISIS guys who are fighting with the forces. And um, some of the Kurds told me that they beheaded people. They, they used the same tactics that they used before they're using now. And the um, it's, it's certainly a matter of, should be a matter of concern to everyone. Pompeo shows up in Israel. He gives Israel what type of assurance? What's the message there? That we're not abandoning you. That you. That we're not. We're pulling out from this limited commitment. Um, again, the the problem is not the reality on the ground or the intent. It's right. the perception. Yeah, of course. And I heard it from every Arab leader when they were here that they're concerned about where is America and what what is the gluing. In the end. It could be that we're sticking it to the responsibility for Syria and the internal conflicts to the Russians and others who are going to find themselves with a burden right. that is going to be very great. Russia has a way of always shifting its onus, but the you know when you're talking about millions of refugees, you're talking about you know all of the different interest groups and, and uh, militias that are operative, and one of the things that that unites them is an external enemy. But this, but it, we see it, by the way, at just one point in Turkey, where you had that you know divisive election and defeat of Erdogan. Today, the people of Turkey are united behind him. Right. But in light of this conversation, meaning what we've discussed this morning, it just Pompeo shows up. The answer to him might be, and again, I'm not suggesting someone react this way, but you'll get my point. Is you know, who are you to say anything? Erdogan and Putin are basically in charge now, or you know, are fighting are fighting out who in fact is in charge of what the future of Syria is all about. It, it's sort of like you know, the the U.S. pulls away, and I get the, the importance of you know guaranteeing they're not going to abandon Israel. I get all that, but in terms of you know showing up and saying that they and, and alluding to the fact that they might still have a role in it, it looks silly compared to what's really going on. Well, the United States always has a role, and we have to see. 
what the next phases will be. But I, I, I share the concern about the perception that's been created. I share the, the concern that our allies, when we see the UAE paying off Iran several hundred seven eight hundred million dollars for some uh, a debt that the uh, negotiations including supposedly between saudi arabia and iran because they no longer feel confident that the west will stand by them including the united states that those are some of the ramifications that we can see and, and they will have to think twice before they make a commitment to something if they're unsure about what the who will be standing with them and what the what potential consequences could arise. Right. You see the, the uh, escalating um, tensions continue in the Persian Gulf area and other areas. Uh, CC has had demonstrations. Um, all of our allies have faced them. Um, and the uh, so, so the message is, like a visit by Pompeo, went to reassure, reassure our allies in the region, including Israel, it is important. But the question is, what are they saying to the Russians? And what the Russians are the, the force that has to make sure that the Iranians are limited and, and allow Israel the, the ability to, to respond as they have. Uh, and Israel has to weigh now, what would, there be a, would that enable Iran then to have an excuse to strike back? Yeah. Uh, well, you have to be thankful, or at least you have to be impressed, um, with the attitude that, the, uh, that our community in Israel, or our brothers and sisters in Israel, are having toward the holy sites uh, as as so many of the uh, world organizations and figures try to cut away or cut out our connection to certain sites that are important to our history to see that in the year 5779 close to 4000 people ascended onto the temple mount we're not going to have the halakhic discussion now you get my point uh, and and just to see the attitude of so many thousands, I'm sure you saw over Sukkot, the people, you know, heading to different areas, whether it be Marat HaMachbilah, Kever Achel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The list is very long, thank God, of our holy sites. At, at least that, that you've demanded of our community, that we not uh, give in to the enemy and let go of that connection, let them dictate um, the narrative about those uh, holy sites. At least, at least that's a big positive that we could see these days. Absolutely, and there are so many new discoveries in my family. We were able to visit some. Just in Ir David, this little tiny uh, hatch of land, so much, have been, so much has been discovered, and every shovel on the ground is uncovering new things and new discoveries. Uh, the same thing at the Minorota Kotel, and to see the, the developments there, uh, both those that have been revealed so far and, and in the overall not, but... In every part of Israel, there are, are new discoveries and so much to see, all of which vindicates our claim, our history, the Tanakh, and and how people aren't excited. And I ask them, when you take your kids, take one half of the day of your touring time and connect them to their past. Yeah. If you want to reassure them, if you want to show them, you know, bring the Torah to life, and, and when they study about it, that they'll have a new relevance for them and a new excitement for them. And it really surprises me that, that people don't even take a fraction of a day and, and devote it to, to this. They can do it just in Jerusalem. They can do it anywhere in Israel today because there are so many amazing excavations and discoveries that, that are taking place. And that reinforces us. It gives us the strength to know our connection to the past, to be able to meet the challenges of the future. And Kaddish Baruch is blessing us with so many opportunities that I hope people really at least talk about it on Shabbos, talk about the discoveries, talk about the the the, the revelations of these um, digs, uh, really uh, confirming everything 
that uh, that the Tanakh teaches us. And the Torah starts with Bracious specifically to remind us that uh, Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, is God's gift to the Jewish people. Listematem, that when Rashi says that the reason it begins with the creation of the world and not the first mitzvah is because it's, he said, in the time will come when the nations of the world will say, you stole the land. Think about this, a thousand years ago already, <laughs> anticipating BDS right. and, and the UN. That's and right. saying, we begin so it would remind everybody. And Hirsch says it's not because the non-Jews will have doubts. It's because Jews will have doubts. That's yep. the greatest danger. Yep. And sure enough, unfortunately, we see too many Jews with those doubts. Hopefully more trips to Israel and some uh, good advocacy will, will change their minds somewhat on that issue. Uh, Malcolm, I thank you. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak again next week. Great. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Friday morning, 7.40 Eastern Time for the weekly update here at JM in the AM.